Hi, it's Caitlin, producer of the Rural Futures Podcast with Dr. Connie. Season one of our show is almost a wrap. Show your support for season two by rating and reviewing us now on iTunes and Stitcher. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. I think when people find something that really feels and smells authentic, it's almost a relief that that can still exist in the world. And to me, that's where small businesses, rural communities have such a leg up over large organizations and large communities. They can choose to quickly lean into their authentic self and their authentic purpose. Rural Futures, the podcast where we connect thought leaders and doers at the intersection of technology and what it means to be human. Every episode, we talk with entrepreneurs, researchers, and achievers to create impact for generations to come. And now, here's Dr. Connie. Hello, and welcome back to the Rural Futures Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Connie, and joining me today is Seth Derner. Seth is the co-founder and co-CEO of Viveac an amazing company based here in Nebraska, but with presence all over the world. Seth, that's just a little bio about you. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and your company. Thanks, Dr. Connie. Appreciate being a part of the podcast. A big fan. So a little bit about myself. I grew up on a ranch in Wheeler County. My parents are still up there. I came down to the University of Nebraska uh, and went back up to Antelope County, where I was an ag teacher. Uh, have since worked for a nonprofit, state government. 13 years ago, started the company. Uh, my wife and I moved back to Lincoln when we started the company. And it's just been an adventure ever since. So my wife and two sons and I live here in Lincoln. But like you said, we've got 20 plus full-time employees all the way from California to Florida. And uh, yeah, we have a great time doing the work that we do, helping other organizations be successful. Well, dive into that a little bit more. I know you're a leader of, of purpose and presence and, and do things in very meaningful ways. Tell us a little bit more about Viveic. So I always tell people we're in the training and development business and immediately people think, oh, you do a lot of stand and deliver like sales trainings. And actually we don't. <laughs> as much as I used to love being in the front of the classroom, we are the people behind uh, great training and development at other organizations or great curriculum developed by other organizations. So most of our work is helping with the strategy, the design and the planning of new training programs for employees, onboarding programs, knowledge dissemination or curriculum for uh, nonprofits or for we do some work with state governments. So yeah, our, our folks, we come alongside other companies who have a big idea or a big need, but they need capacity. They need people who have outside perspective and who have you know, design skills to, to make those things happen. And that's what we help them do is map out the best way forward so that people can really be impacted. We exist to help build the capacity of those organizations that are doing good in the world. And we define that in four areas, organizations that are helping feed sustainably the planet, those who are committed to making education more relevant for young people, organizations uh, that are working in uh, international space to help smallholder farmers be more successful. And then the fourth is any organization that is deeply committed to making sure that their employees have opportunities for growth and development. So that purpose helps us get real clear about the work, the kind of clients that we work with, the kind of work that we want to do. It's been awesome. We've 
recently just updated our vision and our vision is mostly about the impact that we want to have. It's not about how big we want to be. Like we don't really care if we end up being a 200 person company or we stay a 25 person company. Like that isn't what drives us. What drives us is saying, are we doing the kind of work that we love to do? Are we making money doing it? And are we doing it with the kind of people we want to do it with? That's kind of our guiding principles as we move forward in this adventure that we're on with Vivaic. Well, and I really appreciate that about you. I mean, you've had such an instrumental impact on so many things here in Nebraska, not just your company, but the leadership you bring to the table, but also around the nation and around the world with that extended outreach you have through technology. I, I love that history of being a ranch kid that now works in the tech space, right? And you were a teacher. So, I mean, there's just all this, this wonderful sort of history and adventure all in one. But what about that name, Vivaic? When we were thinking about starting the company, my partner Doug and I were meeting with some folks who were kind of mentoring us, people who had started their own companies. And we're at dinner one time in Minneapolis, uh, meeting with a gentleman who was giving us some advice and his wife happened to be with him. And they were, they were both originally from India and she was a linguist. Both her and her mom were trained linguists in India and she was listening to the conversation and then she just pipes up all of a sudden and says, you know what you're talking about is this thing in from an ancient Sanskrit word, which loosely sounds like vivaic. We had no idea what to call the company. And we're like, well, that sounds interesting. And the website was available. And that was really all the thought we put into it. But <laughs> the way she described the, the word was, it's the ability to impart wisdom, not through books, but through experience. And I think that's what drives us is this idea about how you help organizations give people meaningful experience so that they can learn and use that learning to apply to be better employees or better customers, better shareholders, whatever it is that they're trying to improve upon. How do you give them meaningful experience? You talked about technology. I think that's the thing like we work with a lot of technology, but I have no more idea about coding and networking than my dad, who's still on the ranch. But what I learned early in teaching is I was one of the first teachers in the state who taught using the distance classrooms. So this was old school. I mean, these were hard wires, 17 classrooms. And I, I taught in a classroom where I'd see three televisions and I could see kids in these communities and they could see my students and me. And what was eye-opening and awesome to me was the fact that here were students who prior to this technology didn't have a way to access learning about agriculture. And they lived in communities where agriculture was the lifeblood of their community, but for whatever reason, they didn't have an ag teacher or an FFA chapter in their community. And all of a sudden, technology made that possible. What I learned quickly was just because technology makes something possible doesn't make it effective. <laughs> because standing in front of a television teaching you know, it's just different. You have to think differently to make that a successful experience. And so that's kind of been our mantra throughout is technology allows a lot of great things to happen. People have access to information like they've never had access before. But learning is more than just being able to access information. It's giving people an experience. It's putting them in situations. It's challenging them to think differently. It's giving them a, a chance to get their hands on a real world situation and figure out how to solve the problem. And that, I think we're still in the process 
as a society shifting from this idea that teaching and learning is about getting people the right information to teaching and learning being about how do we give people the right kind of opportunity to practice or to learn something new and then be there to coach and guide as they start to make sense of it on their own and see how it, how it plays out in the world. We love technology because it makes things possible, but we don't say technology solves the problem. Technology gives us the venue to solve the problem. Well, how do you see that sort of evolving? You know, right now, I think when we talk about the future and the evolution of humanity and technology, you know, are people going to be replaced by robots or AI? Will we no longer have a purpose as people? You know, from your perspective, how do you see the evolution of technology and humanity together? Uh, it's a great question. And you know, I don't know if I have any special insight. I, I guess I have perspective because we work with lots of different organizations across, you know, crops, livestock, high tech, uh, finance. So we, we get to see lots of different businesses and kind of what they're doing and how technology is changing their world. It's probably it's a it's the same question, just a different version of the question as as was asked for the last 80 years about technology. You know, over Memorial Day, I went and visited the cemetery where my grandparents and great grandparents and great great, you know, the whole lineage is buried. And, you know, you start thinking about we're dealing with technological change. But, you know, the first tractors were introduced, like talk about automation. Right. <laughs> like, that, that's so true. It mean, was a gigantic <laughs> change in society uh, that automated um, and even the telephone and the ability to communicate. So I, I don't know that our challenge is any different than past generations to say, how will technology, it's going to supplant some jobs. There's no doubt about that. We're going to be able to automate some things that currently people are hired to do. But that's always been the case. What I, I always remind people the human brain is so amazing. It is so, so, it's so powerful, especially when we unleash it and we give it permission to learn and adapt and create. When we really allow people to figure out how to solve problems and, and we look at human resources and organizations, not as people doing tasks, but of people solving problems for your organization, then you start thinking about, well, how do we position people to, to solve the problems we need solved in today's world with the kind of technology we have versus, you know, what we would have been doing 10 years ago. So it's exciting. It's scary. But I think it's always been exciting and scary. It's just a different version of that for, for communities today. I agree. And I think, you know, the other thing is we hear so much more about it. I mean, you know, it's this sort of inundation of information and data. And even though we see things changing at this exponential pace, there has always been change. But just like, as you said, with the telephone, when I go back to my own parents' house, my dad's house, he still has a wall phone. And my kids are eight and 11 and they're just sort of like, what, this is, this is so cool because it's a phone that's connected to the wall, but I'm also not quite sure how to use it. (laughs) (laughs) How do you, how do you get on Facebook with this thing? Right. Why do you want to connect it to the wall? (laughs) And, you know, of course, the cord is just stretched out for miles because it's the same phone, you know, my family's had for eons, and I had to take it down to the stairs to have a private conversation in our giant family. So it's stretched out pretty, pretty long. But it is an interesting time in terms of technology. Uh, There seems to be a lot of drama in that space. But what I appreciate about what you've said is that human element as well. And I think sometimes that's forgotten in these sort of futurist perspectives 
is that the human brain is amazing. Humans are amazing. Our emotions are amazing. There's so much that humans have to offer. So this is what I know about is, is with this kind of change is there are companies out there who are very centered on taking care of their people and at the same time looking at automation because they know that in order for the company to sustain, they've got to continue to be profitable. It's being too minded to say, if we don't make profit, then we can't exist and we can't offer anybody employment opportunities. So we have to automate in order to stay efficient, to stay profitable. But we really care about people. Now, there are some companies that say profitable and really maybe don't care about people. And that's that's a whole other conversation. Um, I'm hoping those kinds of organizations will eventually go away uh, and are replaced by really purpose-driven, values-based organizations where they put their people at the center of everything they do. The, those are our role models or those kinds of companies. And those kinds of companies, what they're saying is, there may be a point in time where we have to transition people out of employment. And if there's an opportunity to transition them to other employment in our organization that looks differently, we're going to do everything possible to help discover how people can grow their skills to play a role in a different organization. And if they can't, um, those organizations are typically helping them people transition to other kinds of roles outside of their organization. And I just think if more companies were more intentional about talking about that so that if it is automation is going to change the future, but it's also we're committed to helping people be as successful as they can be or choose to be. And then I think communities as well, like we all probably can think of somebody whose job got replaced um, at some point in, in our history by something that got automated. And, and it's like, what do we as communities do? Do we just look at them and say, gosh, well, too bad. You don't have the skills to get something else. Or do we figure out how we collectively think about, well, what is it that as a community we need to do to lift people up and prepare them for different opportunities in the future? And I think education has a role in that. And I think communities have a role in that if you want to be proactive, because leaving people behind, I think that's what creates resentment. And that's that then drives the fear that people have that they're going to be one of those that get left behind in the future. Well, you know, we've talked a lot about that here at the Real Futures Institute. Like, how do we obviously partner with other organizations to connect our rural areas, but then also help our rural people, our rural communities really thrive in this next generation economy? You know, in some ways, people still have that stereotype of rural that, oh, it's all negative, not a lot going on. And I'm not saying there's not challenges because there are. But in so many other ways, I think there's these amazing opportunities in front of rural communities. And specifically, if there's more partnership with urban and we start creating different models and different questions that are more positive in nature and bringing on that abundance mindset that I know you talk about a lot and really thinking about. How do we as leaders make sure that we're positioning ourselves, our communities to where we want to be and need to be? How do we serve a purpose, you know, in this evolution of, of the world and how can we do better in the future so people are prosperous and thrive wherever they choose to live? I truly believe that's what makes us human to compare and to try and compete I mean, that's the natural order. <laughs> but what makes humans unique is the ability to imagine what would it look like if we collaborated 
cooperated and helped each other out. I continue to hold this belief that it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game, that there, there isn't enough for everybody. And if there's not enough for everybody, then I got to make sure I get mine first. And I'll do whatever it takes to make sure I get what I think I need. And if other people don't, well, that's their problem. I'm all about free markets because our company wouldn't exist without a free market that said, here's a niche. Nobody's doing this well. And if we do it better than other people, we should be able to grow and enjoy the opportunities that's provided. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that when you look at the world and think that there's scarcity, that there's a very small pie and I have to compete to get as much as I can, that leads you to think about everything in one way. You think about the people that you hire, you think about the, your competitors, you think about opportunities. It's all based on this scarcity mindset. In the long term, it leads to a lot of negative behaviors um, and it leads to really toxic culture. I think bad decision making. And sometimes I think people aren't intentional about that. They just, that's just how we're wired. Like when we started the company, we'd go to these networking things and the first question out of people's mouth is, well, how many employees? What's your revenue? How fast are you growing? Which are all legitimate questions, but they're questions I don't really care about. To me, it's, well, are we making enough profit that we can do the things we want to do as a company? So if our revenue is 100 million or 1 million, if I was generating the margins necessary to do what I want to do, how big doesn't matter. It's, are you doing the thing that you are set out to do? And that means you have to define success in your own way. And that you believe that just you being successful doesn't prevent anyone else from being successful. So when somebody who's maybe in your same space doing similar work to you has a success, you don't gnash your teeth and get angry and envious, you say, gosh, that's awesome. Like, look what they did. What can we learn from them that might be able to help us drive to the success that we want? You talk about next generation economy. To me, that's the next, next generation economy is, is how do we build an economy full of businesses, which say, this is our purpose. This is what we want to do. And we're going to measure our success based on what we believe is important. That may mean we only have two employees, but we're doing good work in the world, meaningful work, and that work is having impact. Or it might mean you have 10,000 employees because that's what it takes in order to fulfill your purpose. We have organizations that are purpose-driven, that are people-centered, and where we celebrate everybody's success, we don't always worry about if we're coming out on top. And I, I think that same message applies to communities. You know, how many times is a small town, you hear in a small town, they complain because another town, you know, got a new store or a new mill or a new ethanol plant and they didn't. It's like, well, what do you want your community to be? Be, be intentional about your purpose and your character and lean into that. And then when another town has a success, you know, celebrate that and then learn to say, well, what, what did they do that we could learn from that could help us be who we want to be? I think, I think a lot of organizations, towns or companies, nonprofits, they don't have real clarity about what their purpose is. Why do they exist and what are they shooting toward? Because I think once you get that, it becomes a lot easier and it becomes a lot more fun to work towards something and to call people to be part of something as opposed to you know, just worrying about some of the things that are out of your control, market conditions, prices, those kinds of things. I agree. And I think it just generates that natural flow. As I've done a lot of executive and leadership coaching, you know, even if they seem externally successful, internally, 
they're not always very happy because they've lost that sense of purpose or weren't very clear on it from the beginning. And I think in so many ways, especially in the U.S., we're very socialized to win everything, to be first at this, to go out for every sport, to you know, be this and that, just like you were talking about with the revenues and employees, we've so devalued small businesses or solopreneurs, you know, kind of this negative mom and pop store, like that's a bad thing. And, you know, it's unfortunate that, that we've sort of characterized things in that way. I mean, I think that's changing a little bit, but to really value the purpose individuals bring that can then spring into what does that mean for an organization or community? I think is so important. And I think this starts when people are very young and very little. And just as you said, with many communities, I think part of what's happening in the rural landscape is, you know, a lot of those communities were established for railroads and other purposes. They had a purpose when they were first founded. Yeah. Well, when that purpose went away, the struggle has been very real. And so it's, it's really important to redefine that purpose so that people want to be engaged in that community and people are attracted to whatever that purpose is, especially as people can live, work, play, all that wherever they want to go. The one thing that we're just continuing to see more and more of is people are drawn to authenticity because we've been so inundated with advertising, social media, messaging, messaging, messaging. I think we're all conditioned to think pretty much everything you hear is a load of BS. Like there's a story behind the message. And so I think when people find something that really feels and smells authentic, like they're just, it's almost a relief that that can still exist in the world. And to me, that's where small businesses, rural communities have a, have such a leg up over large organizations and large communities, they can choose to quickly lean into their authentic self and their authentic purpose. And again, you might not be for everybody. I tell that to people who call me and want a job every time. It's more than likely we're not the organization you're going to like hanging out with because we're a little zany. We're a little nerdy. (laughs) Like we're goody two shoes. We work virtually. Like you have to work damn hard for us. I mean, you don't miss deadlines. You have to be really nice to customers and clients, even when they're grumpy with you. Like, there's a lot of people who were like, you probably aren't going to like it here, but that's okay. There's some place that you will love. You just need to, you need to find the place where you will love to be. And that way, the people we have, you know, they don't spend time thinking about the grass being greener on the other side. Um, They know that they're in the place that aligns to who they want to be. I think communities and organizations should should challenge themselves to say, who is it that we are called to be and how do we be okay with not trying to be all things to all people? Because when you try to be all things to all people, you end up being really nothing to no one. Well, that's so important. I think, you know, and you really think about that. That's why you attract the right employees. And I think this comes from your abundance mindset, right? It may not be right for you, but there something else is. So if it's not this, it's a-okay. And I think that's where it's not like a win-lose thing all of the time. Or if I win, you lose. And you know what? We can be happy for the success of others. But this also takes a little bit different leadership style than what we've seen in the past. You know, we getting away from the command and control. I need to look good. And if you're too nice, I get that one a lot. <laughs> If you're too nice, you're not not that effective. And so I'm really excited that authenticity and being nice actually starting to be a good thing rather than, 
you know, a negative thing. Just to build on this a little bit, Seth, I'd love to hear about yourself as a leader. What is sort of your leadership style and philosophy to help support this type of a very mindful growth? It, it continues to evolve because I think leadership is one of those things uh, that is an abstract concept that sounds really good until you have to put it into practice. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, I think. That's where it, learning it from a textbook is hard, isn't it? Right. Yeah. And then it's like, you think you're good at it, but it's a point in time. And then like in six months, you've got a different situation and you realize I have no idea what I'm doing and I'm probably screwing things up. And so it's, it's like one of those never ending things where you're always learning. But this is what I would say is this was some, I don't remember where I heard it many years ago, but that's that talked about when your people don't have clarity about what's important to you, what your purpose is, what your values are, they won't be able to choose to engage with you. They're always going to be guessing. And so I think that's probably my biggest leadership philosophy is I know I'm an imperfect person <laughs> making imperfect decisions every day. And I tell the people on my team, I don't know that this is the right decision. I'm making a guess. It's the best guess I have, but I believe that it's moving us in the right direction. And if it's not, we'll change course. And then when I make a mistake, I own it. So I, that I think is part of it is if you want to be an authentic organization, it starts with you as a leader being really honest with yourself about what you care about, where you're trying to go, what's important to you, and then being vulnerable enough to share that with the people around you. Our organization is really unique because Doug and I are co-founders, we're co-owners. It's a 50-50 deal. There are no unilateral decisions at Viveic. Um, I can't wake up tomorrow morning, decide to hire or fire or change something. Like Everything has to, we have to collaborate. And we've gotten told multiple times by other entrepreneurs, like, you got to change that. Like, that's going to be the thing that keeps you from being successful. And what we continue to find is it's the thing that keeps us from failing is because the some of the flat sides I have are Doug's strengths. And some of Doug's flat sides are my strengths. And when we trust each other enough to believe that we're both trying to make the best decision for the whole organization... That when we when we trust each other and we allow we give each other permission to to move forward on things based on like if somebody just strongly believes this is the right thing to do. And, and then we forgive each other sometimes when it's not <laughs> that that has made us a very resilient organization. We have survived a lot of a lot of ups and downs. And have we missed some opportunities because it takes us a while to make decisions? Probably. But have we kept ourselves from making dumb decisions? Definitely. We have this goal that Viveic will be around for generations after we're gone. Not because it's an ego thing for us, but because we believe that the purpose of Viveic could have generational impact and that we need to make decisions that ensure that, that there's an opportunity for that to happen for years to come. Not only, I think, do you have a strong purpose in, in your business, but you've really combined that with your life, you know, your wife and you working so closely together, you know, the kids, everything, but not only you and your immediate family, the families of all of your employees as well. 
can you share with our listeners how how you work at that type of culture at Vivek and, and some of the things you do to really engage people in their own lives? We do lots of things. It's really important to us that people not only believe that, that we care um, and that we want them to be successful, but we have to demonstrate that time and time and time again. So our leadership team, uh, which is Doug and I, and both of our wives work full time for the company, which I'm, that just then blows people's minds. Like, wait, it really 50, does. <laughs> you're 50, 50 partners and both your wives work. And we're like, yes. And that is the leadership team for the company, which it's like having, it's like a double marriage, but not in a weird way, like in a cool way. <laughs> uh, I always tell people not in a weird way. The great thing is across the four of us, we each bring different strengths, but we have a shared commitment to taking care of people. So we do that at a collective level. We do that at an individual level. So for instance, because we're virtual, everyone works from home office. We have you know four or five people who are living on uh, a family farm. Their spouse is farming full time. And then we've got people, you know, we've got people in Chicago, um, you know, so we've got people everywhere. We get together three times a year in person to build community. For a small example, we always make sure that no one has to travel on a weekend so that nothing that you do for Vivaic should require you to sacrifice the time with your family on a weekend. Now, does that mean that our people don't occasionally work or travel on a weekend? No, because they, they do. But when we get to choose to make things happen, we're going to choose to to honor people's ability to, to, to be with their family or be in their community. Um, so we, we try to be intentional. The thing is, I think that being your own business leader is, you know, when you need to make an accommodation because somebody's got something going on in their world, you get the ability to, to make that decision. For instance, uh, in January, one of our team members in California felt compelled that she needed to run for United States Congress, House of Representatives, District 1. And she called us. And the first thing we said is, you bet, what do you need? And she needed to cut back hours. She needed flexibility. And we talked about it as a leadership team. And it, we felt it was something that we needed to do. And also, we were really transparent with the team that says, hey, these are the decisions we're making and why we're making them. I think the reason our team, no one complained. Um, in fact, they're all very supportive and excited. A lot of them contributed and helped uh, her campaign. <laughs> <laughs> they, what they know is that if, uh, you know, like we've had people who've needed extended maternity leaves just because of uh, situations or people who um, wanted to take an extended mission trip, you know, so they know that we would be that concerned about all of them in the same way we would for Audrey. And does that make things harder as a company? Yeah, because it's, it'd be e the easy thing to do is say, Nope, you signed up. Here's the deal. If you want to leave your job, leave your job. But you know, that's the easy thing. But we say we're flexible enough. We're adaptable enough. We can work around that. And I just think that that is part of what we hope we're modeling for the people on our team because, you know, I have this dream that some people on our team will be inspired and think of an idea of a business they want to start and we can help them be successful. And, and, and we've given them a model and a blueprint of how to be authentic in their own leadership as they start an enterprise. That's our personal purpose is to try to create an entity that can, that can do this for people and model a different way of, of having a company that both makes money and does good in the world. I think, you know, the next generation workplace also requires next generation leadership. 
I'd love to dive in as, as we close here. Any words of wisdom you would like to share with our audience? The biggest word of wisdom I have is I think collectively as a society and individually, we're all answering the question of do I matter? And I think the hard part is, is that we all think we're doing it by ourselves. And the companies and the communities that are successful in the future are those who can answer the question with a resounding yes. And I think that's probably the biggest piece of advice is try and find the like-minded people who are affirming the positive answer to that question. I think we all get stuck in this cycle of listening to the negative voices and believing that things aren't going to get better and that I am just a number. I'm just someone who, who's a customer to an organization. I'm, I'm just somebody who's target marketed by a political campaign. Like I'm, you know, I don't matter. And I don't believe that. I believe that everybody has within them the ability to discover what it is that they're intended to do on here on earth. But most of us aren't given the time or permission or encouragement to figure that out. And so that's my piece of advice is, is be a person who's trying to figure it out. And when you do have a sense of what yours is, then turn around and try and help others figure out what theirs is as well. Cause I think that would make a tremendous difference in the kind of businesses that are created, how we treat each other, and the kind of communities that we could create if there was more of that mindset. Thanks for listening to Episode 9 of Rural Futures with Dr. Connie. We're back with our 10th and final episode of Season 1 next week, and Dr. Connie is going solo. Support our show by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and Stitcher and sharing the love on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Rural Futures.